So I don't know for you what's more unbelievable about the ancient Christmas story. The virgin birth, or the angels in the skies, or the infant no crying he makes. (laughs) Nowadays, Mary and Joseph and the baby aren't really people anymore. They're cut-out nativity characters. We drive by on our way as we live our real lives, while they stand still and frozen next to Frosty and Rudolph and Santa. Perhaps the mythic quality of the ancient story doesn't bother you because it's just so intoxicating. You love it. The scene of perfection you worship before in hopes that your belief in the perfect holiday moment will bless you by receiving it in return. And then this lectionary text comes along and crashes it all. Like the family member whose issues inevitably come up in the perfect Christmas moment. The mother Mary, mild and glowing in maternal bliss, becomes the frantic, angry mother, bursting in the temple and yelling at the Son of God in front of everyone. For those who question biblical relevancy, Luke 2 stops them with the most relatable, most relevant scene in all of Scripture— Parental anxiety pouring forth in an angry public lesson unleashed upon the child. What in the world were you thinking? Look, do you see what this has been like for us? Inevitably, I feel for Mary a little bit in this moment. And their anxiety is valid. The threat of danger, not only of the fact that he was alone in the city for all that time, but one day it turns to reality as these people kill their son. And yet, Mary plays the comic role in the scene. We know what Mary does not know. We know that her son has much more dangerous moments ahead of them than just staying behind at the temple. We applaud Mary's yes at the beginning of her pregnancy, and we soothe ourselves over her presence in the nativity scene. But if we solidify her into some precious moments figurine through these early scenes, we have no idea what to do with her in the temple. We might be quick to brush her off for a one-dimensional character, happy one time, angry the next. But if she was a real person... If the whole mystery of God is revealed with the divine within human beings and not just one-dimensional characters, then we have to assume that living life as the mother of the Most High was way more complicated than we could ever really understand. What would it have been like to raise the Son of God? Where would you have turned if your parental approach and actions were supposed to match up to a divine prophecy? I'm sure I would have felt some responsibility, some obligation to be the best parent I could be. And where was the handbook on how to raise the Son of God? When Jesus' determination and independent thinking emerged as a toddler, how exactly did Mary discipline Who was the personal on-call counselor for when the Son of God just drove them crazy? Given the greatest task ever, were Mary and Joseph ever confused on what was their responsibility and what was Jesus' Holy Father's responsibility? 
Times when Mary was so frustrated that all she could mother was, either you go talk to your father or I will. It's here in this scene in the temple that we get a glimpse of how confusing and unclear the lines are between the parents raising the Son of God and the Holy Parent's divine spark planted within him. Maybe it's just that I'm fresh off of traveling with young children, but raising children is tough stuff. In your hands holds another's life, their health, their growth, their future. It is all your responsibility. So when we read this ancient text, why? Why did God come in this way? Why come as a baby, a human baby, who was raised not by God exclusively, but by the human family? The flawed, imperfect system that we all know and experience to be one, equally wonderful and traumatizing. Why begin the Son of God's story at the beginning? And not just right at that moment when his ministry actually begins. Why not like a field of dreams moment where he just appears in the wilderness and the word spreads? Because if we are to acknowledge the danger in maternal health during his time, or the rate of infection, or the risks of childhood, or just the pure mortality and messiness of human life, why risk it all? Why risk the Messiah coming in infancy and childhood, so dependent on the humans around him? This is not the first time that God's redemption begins with this peculiar pregnancy and birth. The book of 1 Samuel begins not with Samuel's birth, but with his mother Hannah's anguish. Her husband loved her deeply but could not take away the shame of being ridiculed and provoked by the other women for her lack of children. When she cannot take it in anymore, she flings herself in misery at the temple, where the priest Eli is sitting at the doorpost, and with honesty few are ever able to match, she says it plainly, I am a woman deeply troubled. Eli the priest sees her, and hears her, and prays with her. And in the year that follows, Hannah bears a son and names him Samuel. Samuel's leadership makes way for Saul's reign. Saul gives way to David's kingdom. These rulers move the people from just hoping for land to holding an identity as a nation, as God's people. God's stories always have a way of beginning not where you would think they would begin. God's redemption is always enacted by flawed, imperfect, unlikely people. A woman who is deeply troubled. A teenage girl not yet even married that no one knows. Both bringing forth life, life that one day will transform the world. If the mystery of Christmas is God's coming into the world, how can we better understand it by looking where it all begins? Are these mothers in the stories just placeholders until the sons are grown and can handle things on their own? If what forms a human life is both nature and nurture, could those years between the stable and his ministry have been just as crucial as what was to come, even though they didn't tell us about them? Maybe there is something 
about the daily life shared in community that places the logs just right so that when the fire begins, the light blazes for all to see. Maybe there's something about the human relationship shared in family that sets the foundation on which the greatest buildings can be built. Maybe there's something about sharing family stories while making meals or confessing worries while organizing supplies or just passing time with peers that prepares the heart for the triumphs and challenges to come. God's coming to the world through the infant might be dramatic and awe-inspiring, and God's ministry in its full might be shocking and transforming. But the years in between had to serve their purpose, too. The Son of God began at the beginning, raised by mother, father, and village. The caretakers did their best to prepare him for life and to protect him from danger and to cherish their time together. Mary may not have been able to browse parenting books, um, but we can. I'm in the midst of reading a book called How to Raise an Adult. This book recounts the state of today's parents raising children. The statistics have been reviewed and the results are in. Our culture is increasingly raising young people with less trust of their capabilities and greater dependence on their parents. There are parenting books now not just on parenting infants, but on parenting 20-somethings. In return, the emerging generations are coming into the world handicapped with lack of confidence and underdeveloped coping mechanisms for hardship and failure. Researchers call them orchids, beautiful, but they can't really survive out of the greenhouse, or teacups, precious, but they chip really easily. If this is true or where this is true, how are these parents and these young people ever to embrace the gospel if our inclination and even our celebrated parental posture is to shield, to shelter, and to stand up for our young ones so that they never have to? What if Mary had held Jesus' hand so that he never got away? What if Mary had stood up to the Pharisees so that Jesus maybe didn't have to? Could it be that our great love for someone, whether it's a child or a parent or a loved one, or our great love for something and a project, an idea, an object, it leads us from embracing it to holding it, holding it to protecting it, to shielding it to suffocating it, until it has to wiggle out for some sense of freedom. When the moment counts, we'd like to imagine that we have Hannah's faith, releasing her prized possession to God and never really looking back. But for most of us, the truth is that Mary is who we are, yelling at the Son of God for the risk he took, unable to see the big picture. If you were Mary, raising the Son of God, and you knew what was to come, would you have said yes? Once he had come of age and you had poured years into raising him, would you have just relinquished your control and let him out into the wilderness to be tempted? Perhaps the gospel writer left out how Mary snuck along behind Jesus out into the wilderness, hiding behind trees and rocks just in case he needed anything. Mary may have been tasked with raising the Son of God, 
but that never gave her permission or responsibility to be God herself. The human life, whether the son of God or the son of the carpenter, the human life is God's alone. And when our love for one another leads us to believe that we can control life in order to shape another's uh, destiny, we are in dangerous territory. These efforts to play God, even with good intentions, can lead us to oppression when it works, violence when it's difficult, and despair when it finally fails. The human inclination to protect and save ourselves from the other has led to a world where violence is everywhere, threats shut down school, and voices compete to tell you what you should be most afraid of. What if it is precisely this reason that God is born in our midst? To invite us to take part in the redemption of the world, but never to mistake ourselves as the actual Savior. God comes to redeem the world and our lives, and it all begins through the human relationship, mother and son, son and village, son and world. Great are our troubles and powerful are our fears. But the good news, the good news is that there is more to life than surviving or giving in. Mary may have questioned her original yes, but she continued to treasure it all in her heart until she was able to meet the resurrected Christ and find that the risk had always been worth taking. Yes, loving the other and raising life in our midst will cost us. But we persist because great is our God, powerful in our midst. We worship the one whose love proves more powerful than our fears and troubles, who never stopped loving the other, never surrendered when threats came, and who knew that the joy of resurrection was worth the weight of the cross. Even though there are dangers, threats, and increased troubles, we accept the invitation to partner with God because we worship the one who, even after the cross, is truly raising the Son of God. Maybe it was right there in the midst of daily life in the community with Jesus that prepared Jesus for the strength for the road ahead. Maybe it was right there in that repetition of bedtime routines and storytelling over meals that prepared Jesus' family to endure the dark nights between the crucifixion and the resurrection. With love for one another gained through daily tasks shared, they were bound together in love, so strong that they could endure the cross to gain the resurrection. Can we ever fully understand or rationalize God's strategy for redemption? No. But the redemption comes regardless. Redemption comes to us through fragile beginnings that are nurtured and grown within the human community. And then one day, when we're able to see it fully, we can look back and we can trace its beginning and how, oh my, it almost didn't happen. And then we will understand Then we'll know our role, but until then, we trust the God who is ultimately raising us all. May we be as humbly aware as Hannah, remembering from whom life comes and willingly giving back to God the fruit of our labor. 
May we be as boldly persistent as Mary, continuing in our daily tasks of nurturing the divine in our midst without understanding where it leads us. And may we be as lovingly resolute as Jesus, holding to our calling to risk everything while still honoring and loving the village that raises us. God's coming to us is always an invitation to open our hearts and say yes to the divine presence in our midst. Yes to hope, yes to peace, yes to joy, and yes to love. May we be people willing this day to accept our role as servant of God, to the one who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish far more than all we could ask or imagine. To God, may we give our worship and our praise and our very lives. Amen. As we sing our final hymn, it's our invitation to dedicate our lives again to God. If you seek to show that publicly with us, you may come forward, whether it is to be baptized or to join this community. We stand and sing our faith.